Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Albert Bates and we're going to talk about some really intriguing information about how you can use carbon better in your life. And uh, William is a, a, a former attorney, or I guess he, he is an attorney, but he doesn't practice anymore. And he's an author and a teacher, and he's a director of the Global Village Institute for Appropriate Technology since 1984. That's much longer than I've had my website. And he hangs out in uh, Tennessee, but right now he's talking to us from England where he's doing a little bit of genealogical research. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is a great uh, honor for me. Well, you've done a, 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 you've written a book and the name of the book is Burn and uh, an inter interesting title, but it's uh, really addresses um, what many people perceive as one of the uh, an existential threat to humanity uh, that really uh, triggers a reaction in many people, and that is uh, global warming. There's a lot of people who don't believe it, and it believes it's been a fabrication of political scientists. But the reality is, it's it's I mean, we have changed our world with pollution and uh, massively. Uh, distorted, less than ideal agricultural practices that are devastating the, the planet. Uh, and it's not necessarily just burning fossil fuel and driving cars or internal combustion engine cars, but it's more so the pollution that we're doing that's really can potentially devastate the, the, uh, the climate. Um, and there's some pretty interesting documentaries that support that. So why don't you tell us your experience with that and what brought you to the topic of the book Burned, which is a primary focus on some of the really exciting, simple, inexpensive strategies that we can do to remediate this. Yeah, I, I actually came to this when I was back practicing law. I was doing uh, environmental law and I represented a group of plaintiffs who were suing a chemical company for polluting a local uh, water supply. Uh, the chemical company was making herbicides and pesticides and they were dumping the, the bad batches and the toxic residues of production down a deep well uh, and into a safe drinking water source, which was an aquifer, which is federally protected. And so it was a kind of a slam dunk case, but the, the, uh, the chemical company came into court and they argued that there's plenty of water in Tennessee. We don't need to be protecting sources that are, uh, you know, a kilometer underground. Uh, and my arguments were too. I brought in experts to show climate change is going to change the amount of, uh, of uh, water that we need in the future and uh, population growth is going to change 
the amount of water we need. And so we really should be protecting those sources. This was back in late 70s, early 80s. And at that time, we were talking about uh, one degree of warming per century, right? So we weren't uh, thinking in terms that we, we know of today, which is like we're facing a five or six degree warming in the next 100 years. Uh, based on current trajectories unless we alter that and start doing a, a lot of emission reductions. Uh, and one degree was enough to actually frighten me. I won the case, but I lo lost my nerve. I began to see, oh my gosh, uh, what's going to happen here on, on Earth? What are we going to have? Are we going to have fires in the Arctic? Are we going to have Greenland ice melting? Are we going to have killer heat waves in Paris or England, uh, you know, and, and wildfires that destroy whole towns in California. What's going to happen? And actually, you could just read that news so far this year. Uh, that's what's happening now, you know? And so I got scared. I, I had this sort of revolution, revel revelation at that time. And I left the practice of law and went off and became a mushroom farmer. And I, I grew uh, um, the forest mushrooms, inoke take, maitake, shiitake, uh, you know, the gourmet medicinal ones. And, and, uh, and psilocybin? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually, that was not legal, I have to say. Okay. Uh, it's getting to be, but it's not, it wasn't there then. Um, and so I was growing the ones that, are, that you're probably familiar with, like reishi and maitake mm -hmm. and uh, cordyceps. Uh, and... Um, and selling those kits to farmers. And it was sort of a time for me to just take, take stock, to sit back and to be with my forest and to think about things and not be in the conflict zone until I'd sorted it out. And that process took about 20 years, I'd say. And eventually I became more involved with permaculture, became a permaculture instructor. And that took me to a conference in, on permaculture in Brazil. And while there, I had the experience of seeing what they call the Terra Preta do Indio, the dark earths. Oh, sure. Yeah, the dark earths of the Indians, the Amazonian dark earths. And this was a mystery that had been around for 400 years. How did people living at the equator make these rich, deep black soils that go meters deep into the ground when really everywhere you look that's at that latitude, it's a uh, two-season system with a rainy season and a dry season and the ground doesn't store the nutrients the plants do and when a plant dies it's immediately taken back up into the living biomass and so there's really no soil uh, wealth like we have in the temperate zones right so how did it happen that they have this rich deep black soil in the Amazon and the answer was that they had made it that they had made that fertile soil. And I realized for the first time that there's actually been two systems of agriculture that have been practiced since the dawn of agriculture after the last ice age. You go back to Northern China, uh, um, the, the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia, Northern Africa, the origins of agriculture. And you can think of it as sort of mining the soil, irrigation in the plow went into those deep, rich soils and mined them until they became deserts. It was a desertification process. Everywhere that agriculture started is now a desert. But on the other side of the world, over in the Americas, you had the native peoples for 8,000 years practicing a method that made deep, 
rich black dirt. And it was completely opposite of the kind of agriculture we're familiar with. And then you had the Colombian encounter, right? Columbus comes over, the conquistadors come over, and suddenly those native peoples are taken out of the picture, their form of agriculture disappears, and it's been replaced with irrigation and the plow. And then for the last century or so, uh, chemical agriculture and pesticides, herbicides, you know, the whole nine yards, which is completely re another kind of revolution, which is not in a good direction. So when I went and saw that, uh, I had to understand, how does this work? How did you actually build soils? And it turned out that the secret ingredient was charcoal, that they had made um, carbon into a hard, indestructible form. They had mineralized it, they had carbonized it. And in that process, they had created a structure in the soil. It wasn't chemistry that was making the fertility, it was biology. That that, that hard, mineralized carbon became a habitat for soil microbes. And the soil microbes created what you might think of as a coral reef in the soil. It was this fertile area of, of water storage and air storage and nutrient storage for the microbacteria, you know, the bacteria, the fungi, the microbes in the soil. And that biology made for uh, enormous growth of of infertile uh, plants, very nutrient dense plants, and that in turn created the possibilities for large civilizations which were seen by the conquistadors, but later disappeared to European diseases, slavery, uh, and so forth. Well, that, that charcoal active ingredient had another effect, which is it actually takes carbon from the carbon cycle, it takes it out of the, the atmosphere by holding it longer in the soil for thousands of years really, and in that process, it can um, be a timeout for climate change. It actually allows us to hold the carbon away from going back into photosynthesis in the next few years to a decade-long, century-long, millennia-long period of residence in the soils. It's beneficial for the soils, it's beneficial for the plants, but right now, at this point in time, we really need it for another reason, which is we need to have that time out to give us some time to slow our emissions down to go carbon neutral and then this is what you might call carbon negative or, or a drawdown effect of carbon actually leaving the atmosphere leaving the ocean and coming back into the land where it had been as fossil fuels before yes indeed i'm, I'm particularly curious because uh, you mentioned two statistics one that the uh, terra preta soil was uh, several meters deep uh, and there was 400 years of making that happen, but then you mentioned also referenced 8,000 years that they were yeah. doing. So no, they carbon dated it to 8,000 years. At, at first, okay. they thought it was a few centuries, but as they got farther into it, they found uh, soil examples that were much older, and they found them now in other continents too. They found it in Australia, uh, but it, it's a it's a practice that sort of passed along from one one group of, of native peoples to another, it sort of spread like the hundredth monkey effect and pretty soon it was everywhere. Uh, and, and then you had the, um, the growth of, of the plants, which sort of was a redeeming feature. And so from that standpoint, you could, you could begin to use it as what they called terra mulatto. So they would mine it from one place where it had been there for centuries and put it in another place and spread it out. And they got this uh, additional added fertilizer effect. Yeah, and I'm wondering how, you would compare to the soils that developed naturally in the Midwest, which are traditionally referenced as some of the most uh, 
the deepest topsoil that occurs naturally because of the, uh, the perennial grasses that grow every year and the bison that were prominent for so many centuries before they were devastated by the, the uh, settlers <laughs> from in the United States. But how, does, how do those two soils compare? It sounds like the Terra Preta would go far deeper than the one in the Midwest. Well, no, they're actually they're both about the same in terms of depth. Uh, you get those kind of depths in the Midwest. Uh, but the, the, I think fire played a substantial role in the formation of the soils in the, the Great Plains as well. You had a fire regime that was lightning on the prairie, as it were. And uh, actually, the native peoples managed the wild bison herds and, and the elk and so forth using fire as a, as a hunting mechanism. So you actually had the perennial fire uh, rotational uh, system there, which uh, built uh, carbon in the soil. Yeah, so let's talk about that because essentially when you are burning biomass um, you and you do it without oxygen, if you do it with oxygen, you're essentially having a wood fire and that's just going to create ash and that doesn't really uh, create a structure of carbon that's going to provide the benefits that you just mentioned. So you need to burn it without oxygen and that there are several ways to do that. You can do it in pits, you can do it in chambers that are created to do this and it's done uh, and manufactured today but that the, that once that process is done you reference this as charcoal which it certainly is but it's, it's typically called today biochar so why don't you talk about that a bit yeah the biochar is distinguished from charcoal and you're right about the pyrolysis process there's every fire goes through two stages the first stage is you warm up the material or maybe you strike a match and the phosphor on the end creates a flame and that just heats up the match for just a moment and then you get the burning the smoke the flame uh, and as it begins to burn down the match it leaves behind a charcoal stick that's the first phase of the fire and that you can call that carbonization the set, and that's actually the burning of the gases, the burning, all, the heating of the wood until the gases come up and all of the volatiles go and, you know, each one goes in turn at its own kindling temperature, but the last to go would be carbon. And so finally what happens is the carbon oxidizes, it joins with oxygen, it turns into CO2 or CO, and that carbon stick on the end of the match turns into ash. That's the second stage of the fire. So in the process of making charcoal, and I'll distinguish that from biochar in a second, the process is to stop it before it oxidizes. And the way you do that is to deprive the fire of oxygen. You burn in the absence of oxygen. And so you're baking at the first stage. You're, you're bringing out the gases. You're burning off the gases, or you can save them and use them for something else. And then you're holding that last stage, the, the hard carbon stage, in a permanent condition and not letting it go to ash and not creating smoke. So that's, that's the pyrolysis process. That's the carbonization. Now, uh, if you want to distinguish the, the charcoal that you buy in a hardware store or buy in a, you know, a grocery store from biochar, I would say the distinction there is that you wouldn't want to eat the stuff you buy in the bag in the hardware store. <laughs> but the biochar that you make or that you can buy as biochar may be pure enough that you could actually eat it. The difference is that when they're making charcoal for your grill, they might put a little um, accelerant in there to make it light quickly or to burn evenly, or they might have some other petroleum product in there for another effect, color, 
they might add some Jack Daniels or some George Dickel or something to make some hickory smoke flavor. Uh, all of those are, are things that make it less pure for a gar from a gardener's standpoint. If I'm wanting to use it to grow better plants and have better nutritious food, I want the pure stuff. And so when we say biochar, we're talking about the kind of carbon that forms under those conditions. When you drive off all of the other elements that are in a plant, uh, they volatize, they turn to gas. When you drive those off, what you're left with is carbon that's been raised now to a temperature of maybe 600, 700 degrees Celsius, maybe more. And at that temperature, it's actually lost its connection to all these other um, molecules, all these other atoms of different elements, and it's formed uh, bonds with itself. It, that's the, one of the unique things about carbon, is it can form ring bonds, it can form chains to itself, it can bond to itself. And when it does that, it's like buckyballs. It's a very strong tetrahedral bond, very difficult to break. And so the reason that it lasts so long in the soils, why you can find 250 million year old biochar from forest fires from ancient epochs is that uh, the microbes come into that, they see the, uh, they try to chew on that carbon to digest it and they break a tooth. <laughs> they can't break those bonds. So if they have any other food at all, they'll choose another source and leave that biochar alone. Interesting. So how would you distinguish between activated charcoal that is sold as a supplement and actually what, what I use personally, as many people do, for detox purposes and for helping build my own microbiome and, and biochar? Are they pretty similar? Yeah, and I, I also use activated carbo, uh, carbon, although I, I sometimes can substitute biochar and I seem to have the same effect. It's mm -hmm. a detox, right? It's chelating. So it goes, through your, it goes through your body, and if you're in a fasting mode or whatever, and you're, you're taking toxins out of your stored toxins, uh, and you, you want to get rid of them quickly, a little activated charcoal in the diet at that time in your, in your diet is really a good idea. Biochar has the same effect because of the pore structure. If you look at it under a microscope, you see that it's got all of these pores. Some of that is the original plant structure, and some of that is the volatile gases as they explode, they cratered the sides of the original vessels of the plant and left behind this skeletal structure. It looks like bone marrow under a slide, uh, but it's got pores on the walls of the pores, and then it's got pores on the walls of the pores on the walls. So it's fractal, it's turtles all the way down. Uh, and what you get there is you get this ability to absorb and adhere things. It's got a high cation exchange, so it, it's kind of magnetic in the way that it, it sticks things to it, its walls. It's particularly strong in sticking nitrogen, sulfur, and things like that. So that has that, that chelating effect in the, in the body taken in small doses. Activated charcoal is actually a processed charcoal. It's, it's sometimes processed with um, hydrochloric acid or some other acid bath. The purpose of that is to steam, is to clean the pores. It can, be, it can be created by steam as well. And you can steam clean biochar in the process of quenching it in the fire and get pretty much the same product. You're cleaning out the pores. Uh, you get to you know a 90% or 95% carbon when you when you do an activated charcoal biochar might only be 80%. It could be less depending on how well you do the fire. But uh, you know they're, they're roughly equivalent in terms of of how your body would process them. 
That's great. And I was actually inspired to revisit that after reading your book because you relate a number of incidences where uh, biochar is regularly introduced into animal feed with quite uh, significant improvements in the health of the animals and, and their growth. And when I started using it, I noticed uh, significant improvement in the quality and the character of my stool. I mean, it's really pretty magnificent, actually. It turns the stool dark, of course, and almost black. But you've got to be careful. One of the things you didn't mention, I mean, you referenced that it, it could be used for detox and it will bind things, but it will bind things indiscriminately. It will bind beneficial nutrients and toxins. So yeah, ideally, you want to take it when you're two hours after your, after your last meal and at least an hour before your next. So you don't you want know, to take it with prescription medicines because it's going to yeah, nullify yeah. those. You yeah. don't want to take it when you're when you're rebuilding your body and putting in good nutrients because it's going to take out some of that. You know, it's it's best to do in the, in the early stage of detox when you're trying to cleanse. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to do it at least two hours after meal and ide ideally before I go to bed. Sometimes is and far enough away from my bedtime nutrients. So. But it's, 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 it's really inexpensive and something I think almost nearly everyone would seem to benefit from. I mean, there's almost no downside to it because we're all, I mean, we've been exposed to over 80,000 industrialized chemicals in the 21st century. And it's just literally almost impossible to avoid that exposure. So you need some type of regular system to help your body eliminate some of these toxins. And biochar can be one of the effective tools. I think also- Biochar activated you mentioned the animal agriculture. I think that's all a really important point because uh, animals are typically being raised in confined operations and they're fed a lot of antibiotics. They're just prophylactically using antibiotics to help the animals gain weight. And it's crazy. What we're getting is disease resistant or, or antibiotic resistant diseases. Uh, you know, and it's epidemic really of antibiotic resistant, resistant bacteria because the bacteria are smarter than we are. They can keep breeding faster than we can. And so they, they develop immunities to these uh, broad scale, broad spectrum antibiotics. So we need to do something about that. When you add biochar to the animal's diet, uh, actually, it improves to the point where the need for antibiotics just virtually disappears. It's especially insignificant in, in cattle. Now, cows, of course, have enteric digestion. They've got their rumen. They're doing fermentation in their stomachs. And so you've got this process of fermentation, which is a microbial soup. It's, it's mm -hmm. a bacterially active ferment. And so if you can add a little bit of biochar to that, it actually improves it the same way it improves the microbial habitat in soil. It becomes that coral reef effect within the gut of the animal. And so now you've got animals that are fed this, cattle particularly, um, their, uh, their rumen gets really good. Their antibiotic need uh, diminishes to zero. They, they then add weight faster. They have a higher uh, efficiency of feed conversion. So less food puts on more weight or produces more milk than it had before they started supplementing like 1% biochar, 2% biochar into their diet. And not only that, when it comes out the back end of the animal, first off, you're getting less methane production, about 30% less methane production off out of both ends of the animal when you add biochar to the diet at one percent but now as you as you come out the back of the animal that manure is now rich in that biochar and so it's going to compost faster about a, a third or a quarter faster than normal composting operations would take 
and it's going to be a composting process that scavenges nitrous oxide and scavenges sulfur dioxide. It takes those elements that would become greenhouse gases in the composting process and holds them and uses them and puts them back into what's the final product that's going into the soil. So a, a cow that's been grazed in an open pasture and is being fed biochar as a supplement is, is fertilizing that pasture to the point where the roots of the grasses grow deeper and thicker. The grasses come up faster and more nutrient dense. So that again reduces the cattle feed requirement. And you can graze more cattle on the same amount with slow, faster rotations because of this. And then you, you have the effect of the, the cattle, the, the pasture recovering and being able to resist floods, droughts. Uh, it just continues to get better year after year because the biochar is slowly being added to the soil from the cow. Uh, so you've got this beneficial loop. There's an Australian farmer, uh, Doug Powell, that I mentioned in the book. He uh, bombarded his fields with dung beetles, you know, the beetles that roll up bottle, uh, balls of manure and put them underground. And so he figured, well, if he had more dung beetles, it'd be a good thing. And he was feeding his cows biochar. And he discovered that in the first year, he made $20,000 more on his farm after one treatment of dung beetles to help him take the, uh, the biochar underground. That's very innovative. Creative guy. So uh, that, that's a great example of a, a solution, one of the solutions that you offer in the book to help address this issue of excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And one of the quotes that you have in the book that I'm really fond of is that humans have a fondness for breaking all the natural laws except for one, the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. So, you know, we... We, as you, when you opened up and the, gave all these examples of how the, the weather seems to be changing, uh, this is, is a great example of that. But I'm wondering if you can address some of the other examples of what's happening and then really start on the basic premise of the book, which is all these different strategies of using biochar when you list dozens and dozens of different ways and opportunities, for, especially for someone out there who might be interested in, in following their passion and, and not only doing that, but helping resolve some, some deep problems that our, our species faces. So by, and then benefiting themselves too by offering these innovative solutions. So why don't, why don't you address that? I looked at uh, this, this issue of, of what are gonna, what's gonna be the sequence of events as we go through one degree, two degrees, three degrees of warming back in a book I wrote in 1990. Uh, called Climate in Crisis. And I, that was the point at which I was totally frightened and didn't really have much in the way of solutions. <laughs> so that was my David Wallace Wells movement, uh, movement of the uninhabitable earth. Now I'm more of a solutions guy. Now I see that the, there's actually ways that we could extr extricate ourselves if we, we have a mind to. Um, but at that point, you know, I think I've actually made some predictions that have turned out to be quite uh, correct. Uh, right now, we're seeing this, this breakdown of the polar vortex. We've been seeing it over the last few years with extreme winter events and then extreme summer events, where we used to have just this circular motion around the poles of the jet stream. And the North Pole in particular had this very even circular motion. It had some, a little bit of waves in it. Uh, and we get cold fronts every now and then come down into the Northern United States. But for the most part, it was a fairly even 
average distribution. And then what happened about starting about two, three years ago was we had what we call rolly waves and they begin to break uh, and, and dive deep into the continent and at the same time drive, drive heat far up into the Arctic. And that's had the effect of accelerating the melting of the Arctic, the melting of the Greenland ice and so on, the melting of Siberia and all of the permafrost up there, which is an accelerant because the permafrost is full of methane. There's frozen methane under the shallow Arctic uh, seas and there's uh, methane in the, in the permafrost. And so that's now being released to the atmosphere. This year, we're seeing forest fires above the Arctic Circle. There's peat fires above the Arctic Circle. There are methane fires coming out along the coastlines. And we're seeing uh, this rapid rip melting, this rapid melting of Greenland and of the Arctic and the blue ocean event of, of summers in the Arctic. And the experience that we've just had, if you look at a map today, right now, where is the temperature at this moment in the world? You will see it's really hot in Greenland, and then just right next to that in Scandinavia and the, the north, uh, northwestern corner of Russia, it's extremely cold. And then you get a little bit farther on over to China, and it's extremely hot again. And then you go, go a little bit farther around, and you find it's hot in, in southern Alaska. And so now we're starting to see these, these alternating heat and cold as that big wave motion is happening from the pole to the equator. That's climate weirding. It's making it extremely difficult for farmers to do normal crops and to predict when is the cold going to be too extreme or when are they going to get a drought. Uh, they're actually getting these enormous swings of high temperatures and then cold temperatures and high temperatures and then cold temperatures. We hit records all across Europe last week, 108 degrees in Paris. And the next day, the Tour de France stage had to be canceled because of ice and snow and slush on the roadway. Uh, so <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's ex these extremes that are very challenging. When I start to look for solutions, I have to say, it's, it's about trees, it's about forests, it's about more photosynthesis. Yeah, before we go to the solutions, I just, let me just interject here because I, I know what you just said is going to irritate a lot of our viewers because they, they essentially don't believe in climate change. But even for those individuals, if you discount climate change and say it doesn't exist, we're not, we don't have any climate change, it's just a fantasy, you know, something that's made up, that the solutions that you are offering are only good for the planet. These are going to do good things for the entire species. So there is absolutely no downside to using them. It's going to help pollution, lower pollution, increase healthy nutrient-dense crops and uh, reduce runoff and red tide in the oceans. It's, it's just all beneficial. I, you know, I've been going to these conferences for the last 10 years or more. I've been going to all of the uh, UN climate conferences, uh, you know, Paris and Marrakesh and Copenhagen and Bonn and, and, you know, I get depressed because I'm seeing how slow that the government moves on these things. And I cheer when we, we have, you know, heroes like Greta Thunberg or, or the Extinction Rebellion who come out and say, we can't wait for governments. I, I'm with that because governments are just terribly slow. They're way too slow in moving on this massive issue that's going to affect us all and already is. I think people who may have lived in Paradise, California might have not believed in climate change until their house burned down or their whole town burned down 
or the people who lived in one third of Santa Cruz, California, who woke up the next morning and found that that that, that town had gone, you know? And so these kinds of things are the wake up moments and it, you don't have to wait to experience that. You can start doing things be, because there are other good reasons to do them. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when I, when I talk about not trusting governments, I have to start thinking about what is the motive to get us to change if we're not forced to do it by some government regulation? And the answer is a profit motive. It profits us to make this change that's required. So windmills are now cheaper than nuclear power plants. So you can be anti-nuke or you can not, but windmills are cheaper right now. Uh, and the, the same goes for a lot of things having to do with the solutions to climate change. And, and a lot of the focus of my book is, look at these opportunities. We start to think about how can we start to use biochar in things that, in normal products in daily life that makes those products better. You know, instead of just thinking about carbon as the enemy, carbon is the foe, carbon is something that we have to do away with, like, like it's plastics or something. No, carbon can be our friend, carbon can be our ally, it has very unique characteristics as an element. And so let's start putting carbon into our hardscape. Let's start putting more carbon into our steel, our concrete, our asphalt, our buildings, our bridges, our roads, our tunnels. Let's start putting carbon into everything. Let's start using more wood. Let's start having a more of a wooden uh, kind of a vernacular to our to our way of living. Uh, and actually, it's very beautiful. And it has benefits like it makes the cement stronger. It makes the asphalt uh, more less likely to form potholes. There's all these benefits that you get when you start to experiment with these materials. Yeah, why don't you go in deeper into some of them? Because it's really quite fascinating. Um, integrating carbon into some of these uh, structural materials radically improves the, the physical properties and the longevity of that because you know roadways don't last forever i'm sure if you've been around long enough you've seen the local roads having to be repaved and redone and highways redone on a regular basis so it would be a, a great opportunity to integrate the carbon into a useful format and uh, decreasing the, the the need for re repairing and replacing those structures yeah, and let me, let me just start off by saying that um, we had this problem in the scientific community, which was looking for ways to go beyond just emissions reductions and actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And they found limits to this biochar strategy in the problem of sources and sinks. How, much, how many trees would you have to have or how much waste material from one source or another would you have to have in order to make enough biochar to make a difference? And then where would you put that biochar? And they figured maybe 2 billion tons a year could be put into agriculture, into making fertilizers and, and things like that. Okay, that's not enough. We need to actually get about 50 billion tons out of the atmosphere every year because we're putting 40 billion tons up there and so we need to take we need to take out what we're putting up there and another uh quarter or so in order to start bringing down the concentrations in the atmosphere in order to restore the climate back to normal so we need to have an active drawdown system how do you do that so we looked at my, my co-author and i kathleen draper began to look at where can we store biochar besides agriculture and we started to look at well biochar plastics. Uh, I could actually make 
a, a, a polymer using biochar that uh, is uh, a comparable to uh, the kind of polymers that you would use to make roofing tiles or uh, surfboards or boats or any number of things. And it's, it's hard, it's durable, it's gonna, it's gonna be there, but it's also taking carbon out of the atmosphere. I looked at uh, cement, you know, and if you take normal cement and replace part of the sand that's in the cement, if you can replace up to maybe 8%, uh, you're you're not reducing the strength of the carbon of the concrete, but the first two percent actually increases the strength. So there's no reason for a cement maker not to be replacing sand with biochar. The cost is comparable, and the price of sand is going up, and the price of biochar is coming down. So why not let's let's make cement with a biochar content. Let's make a regulation that requires a, a biochar content in new cement. Uh, and this could be buildings, it can be bridges, it can be lots of things. You're increasing the strength, you're, in, you're increasing the, the crack resistance, the anti-spalding, which is heat resistance. You're increasing the tensile strength and the compressive strength. All of that just by changing out sand with biochar, right? And, and let, me, let, me, let me just interject yeah. here too, because there's another property that you discuss later in the book, but didn't mention here. And that is if you were using this as a building material, say for your home, that, that carbon from the biochar will actually act as an EMF shield and insulate you from EMFs from the environment. You're getting into a, a huge area of interest uh, because we're just beginning to learn about electrosmog and our, our total environment. And uh, I did this little experiment. We, Kathleen and I held a workshop at my place in Tennessee and we called it biochar from the ground up. We were looking at ways to use biochar other than agriculture. And in the process, we made this, uh, this paper. It's, a, it's a, a piece of paper that was just old uh, rag content, newspaper, <laughs> and a little bit of biochar put into the paper, right? Maybe five or 10% is, is biochar, right? So I, I said, well, that's kind of interesting. I've heard that if you, um, if you, if you paint or plaster a, an interior wall with biochar, you reduce the uh, infrared and the, and the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, and uh, you reduce um, EMF, you reduce uh, Wi-Fi. So let me take a little experiment here. And I pulled out my Trifield strength meter. I went over to the nearest wall socket and I, I put the meter up there and I was getting, you know, it pegged the milligauss reading right off the chart. And so I had to pull back to about maybe half a meter. And at that point it was just kind of twitching at the top of the scale, okay? And then I put the piece of paper between the meter and the wall socket, and it went to zero. It just flattened, just instantly. I, I, I think you were, you were likely measuring uh, electrical fields, not magnetic fields, because it's really difficult to insulate against sure. magnetic fields. That's, that's true. And there's a, there's a whole spectrum there we could talk about. Yeah. But we know it also breaks, it also in, uh, intercepts uh, Wi-Fi. It, it uh, blocks uh, infrared. So if you're doing a secret grow room in your basement and you want to paper the walls, <laughs> here you go. Um, the, well, but but it, it is a really effective solution for creating essentially a Faraday cage and radically reducing the amount of, of uh, radio frequencies that are in, entering your home environment. So uh, we're desperately going to need this. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, my next book next year is, is, uh, is about this whole topic 
and the dangers that it's going to be presenting. But I, I believe we're right now with EMFs where we were about 1970 with tobacco. Yeah, uh, we're, we're 20 or 30 way, years away from the public understanding that this is a real problem. I go around looking at, at electromagnetic sources with my meter and I see, you know, I get spikes near the electrical boxes. And I think, you know, it would be so easy if the plastics that make those mm -hmm. circuit boxes or those wall uh, framing sockets were just made of this kind of material instead of just plain plastic, that they could be blocking that electric spectrum from entering the room, just that simply. Yeah, it's, it's relatively inexpensive, but let's go back to more of these, the, the, the really large, uh, solutions that are going to be required and as i see it it's really you mentioned one of them was which was getting the biochar back into the soil uh but also actually growing plants and no so so let me address the biochar so the, with the creation of biochar you have the, the practical challenges that one of the biggest costs involved with it is actually transportation so you really want to produce it uh, and essentially pyrolyze the local biomass so that you don't have to move it so far because the because of the cost of, of moving it. So can you address that and then secondarily address the issue of creating more biomass, like essentially trees or other or, or other uh, plant materials that are grown in areas that isn't really being uh, used for that now? Because it, it, it seems to me that integrating just those two solutions could seriously address some of the increased carbon dioxide concentrations we're seeing in the atmosphere. One of the main sources that we're finding for, I didn't, you know, I, I mentioned these new sinks, these new things you could put biochar into, but I didn't mention the things that you can get biochar from, because we don't want to be be growing genetically modified yeah. uh, forests of eucalypt somewhere. You know, now these are monocultures; these are just terrible. These are not what I would even call a forest. You know, and so what we want is mixed age, mixed species, mixed variety, birds, plants, animals, fungi, uh, all of that living together in harmony. And that is a giant carbon sink, but a living sink, not a plantation. So we want to avoid the kind of plantation mentality. We also want to uh, look at waste materials that normally in the normal course of daily commerce would decay into carbon dioxide or methane or would be burned as uh, carbon dioxide and in that way would go to the atmosphere as greenhouse gases. Australia did this study of what were the sources of potential uh, products for biochar, what were the feedstocks, and they found that two feedstocks were enough to supply the entire industry for the foreseeable future. One was chicken litter and the other was paper mill wastes. So you have chicken manure and paper mill waste that would, pr would provide biochar off into the indefinite future for that one country. You could look at lots of other sources, municipal biosolids, the solids from municipal sewage plants. Uh, you could look at um, industrial waste like pallets or other kinds of things that are just being burned or put into landfills that are organic uh, carbonized, carbonizable biomass. Uh, so we can begin to, to catalog those and we see that there's more than enough. We can be planting forests 
and maybe using the forest products like sawdust from the sawmills or scrap wood from furniture factories as the waste stream, but we don't have to be cutting down trees to make biochar. In fact, we should not. We should not be doing these large-scale monoculture biomass plantations. That's the wrong way to go for energy. We should be thinking about energy from waste because this process of making biochar also makes heat and it makes gases that can be burned so that it actually is an exothermic reaction. It creates the possibility of making electricity while you make the biochar. So you can be making biochar on a local scale, you know, community scale, uh, from small reactors, close to source, using waste streams, identifying waste streams ahead of time, and then tapping those to make your biochar with. And if it's a little bit contaminated, like for instance, municipal biosolids might have pharmaceuticals, they might have heavy metals, you wouldn't want to put that into a fertilizer. You wouldn't want that in your garden. But you could use it for a cement, you could put it into the roadways, and if you add it to asphalt, it reduces the number of potholes, it, it makes the highway more flexible, the cars get better mileage on their, uh, both on gasoline and on, on uh, the tires. So mm -hmm. you actually have this uh, beneficial effect from adding it to asphalt. All of those things are possible. You can use that, those waste streams that are contaminated in, and put it into those products that uh, don't have to be as pure as your food. Yeah, and I think you said, mentioned in the book that you could sequester 1.8 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year just by putting it into concrete and, and not only sequestering the carbon, but also getting the additional benefits which you, which you referenced earlier. Well, when you begin to look at all the aggregates, like all the different things we use sand for, people don't think of sand as a, as a scarce resource, but it is a construction grade sand is a diminishing resource and the price is going up, the competition for it is going up. And so we're beginning to think about what are, what are some things we can do instead of sand. And actually you can look at how much sand is used in the world and it's not one or two gigatons, it's 10 or 20 gigatons of how much sand could be turned into biochar for use in the world. Uh, and you can look at the same for gravel and aggregates. Uh, there's lots of construction possibilities there. Think about carbon fiber. Think about carbon fiber cars. Think about carbon fiber reinforcements for old crumbling infrastructure like columns under bridges. You can make mesh spider webs of carbon fiber that are as strong as steel and can wrap around old crumbling columns in, in uh, structures and actually uh, create the reinforcement that's required to make those things strong again. Uh, those are new applications that can be used we're starting to see applications in medicine. We're starting to see applications in batteries. There are lots of different forms of, of carbon. Uh, it's a, market, a totally amazing molecule with lots of potential. Yeah, and I'm, you mentioned the, the uh, option of using some uh, nitrogen waste like chicken manure into the, into the biochar. And I'm wondering how that would work because that's, isn't that primarily nitrogen, not carbon? Well, we're talking about the chicken litter. It's what's coming from oh, the Oh, chicken litter. litter. Okay, I'm sorry, mix it up. So it's, it's a mixture of the straw or, or whatever they put on the floor okay. of, the, of the chicken area. Now, I'm a permaculturist, right? I told you yeah, I'm yeah. a permaculture teacher. The highest use of that chicken manure for me is to make compost from my garden, right? It's beautiful nitrogen. I don't want to burn it up. Uh, on the other hand, I can see the waste streams coming out of certain processes the feather meal that comes out of the poultry processing facility, the feather meal is, is another possibility for charring, right? Anything that's carbon in, in, in an origin is, is potential for biochar. Yeah. 
So uh, I guess the key then is to identify these waste streams. And I believe you mentioned a statistic of like eight, only 20% of the waste stream is currently being utilized and 80% is just going to waste and having to be disposed of in some landfill. So uh, what do you perceive as the biggest challenge to identify these waste streams and incentivize local entrepreneurs to create these uh, investments in the infrastructure to form a biochar uh, incinerator because I think that they, they're expensive it's probably uh, at least in a commercial application well over a million dollars to create these things well yeah you know you can run the whole spectrum there I actually do a PowerPoint on that uh, but you you can make those in your backyard sure out of, out of simple materials yeah. anyone can make a biochar kiln for under three hundred dollars yeah like a 55 gallon drum but, right. but for commercial exactly. applications you need a more or, yeah, there's, there's, there's available downloadable pdfs online that you or, or youtubes that you can watch on how to make these things yeah commercial operations would be million dollar operations there's a mobile one that the forest service is using to go up and and clean out the deadwood after fires and and try to uh, prevent future fires and that runs half a million dollars for one of these giant tractors that's a mobile biochar kiln right so you can talk about that kind of scale in china they're doing an interesting strategy they're they're looking at that that life cycle analysis of how far does the material have to travel to get to the biochar conversion and then how far does the biochar itself have to travel to get to the end use and they want to reduce those they want to bring those numbers down because that's the greenhouse footprint they want to make this to be a net drawdown effect that means they need to reduce the greenhouse footprint all along the, the trail so what they're doing is they're citing their their big reactors their million dollar plants strategically in areas that have a lot of of of, uh, of crop wastes, rice husks, millet uh, husks, processing waste from various different uh, grain crops. And they're citing these, these large units um, in those areas and they're having the, the feedstock close at hand. And then they, the source, the places where they can send the biochar fertilizer to are also close at hand because they can put it directly back on those same crops and get a better yield. What they're finding in China is they can sell that fertilizer for about a dollar a bag less than the standard chemical fertilizer, and it's 15% wow. more effective. It's 15% oh, triple win, triple so win. When I, when I say you don't need governments, that's a no-brainer. When any farmer gets a situation like that, they don't have to believe in climate change. They just have to believe they're going to get a better deal when they grow their food. So that's intriguing. I didn't realize, maybe it might be mentioned in the book, I don't recall, but that China had that type of commitment. I, it's not in the book because I went yeah. to China after I finished the book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't recall reading that then. No, but, I, I'll get a future book, I'll put that in. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so maybe you can comment on China's commitment to that and what you believe it might take to incentivize a similar process in the United States. Well, you remember at one time, the United States was sort of the leader in the technology of solar and wind and all that. Mm -hmm. Back in the, in the early Carter years, the early 70s, we were sort of taking the research lead in all that area. And then came the 1980s and, and it fell off a cliff. Uh, all the federal funding dried up. And so what happened was Denmark took the wind power and ran with it and started building the best windmills in the world. And today they're the world leader in that industry. China at that time started working in photovoltaics and now they're the world, they brought the price down on mass produced 
solar energy from solar electricity. That was China's doing that brought that price down. Okay, so what they're doing now in China with biochar is they see that as sort of another industrial revolution, an area where they could get market dominance because they're way ahead of everyone else. And so it went in China, they went from laboratory scale, just doing field trials on small scale, to building the first prototype, you know, large reactors, rotary kilns that are, that are processing thousands of tons a day, to uh, the next stage, which is deploying six of them at strategic places around the country, and, that, and then the next year going to 24, and then this year going to 200, and next wow. year going to, next year they're going to put it out on the new Silk Road to India and Africa and so on. And these are like plug and play. You just drop the reactor on the site where you've got a lot of biomass coming in from wastes and you put it back into those same fields and you're drought resistant and you're uh, flood resistant and you get better yields and the price is less than fertilizer and yada, yada, yada. Okay, so that's China's strategy. And we're just, we're not even noticing. We're not even on that page. You ask most people in the United States what biochar is, they don't know. In yeah. Europe, Switzerland, if you ask them, they say, oh yeah, that's what they're feeding to the cattle to make my milk. You know, they know, they're starting to learn that. In Australia, they know that because they've had this experience with avocados and, and with other kinds of uh, uses of it there. But not so much in North America. We're still sort of very vague about, you know, what it, what it even is. What does the word mean? Wow, do you, so are you, uh, do you believe there's any hope for us or what do, you, what do you feel that the pathway is to catalyze the interest like they have in China? And I'm, I'm really very excited to hear about that China experience. That's just fantastic. Well, we'll learn the hard way, right? You know, um, China is still, it's still got a lot of issues, you know, and, and uh, they're going to have to figure out some things that they haven't figured out yet about the whole process. One thing that they didn't really have figured was how many workers it takes to run that whole factory and how, and how, and how you would bag all the stuff and get it on pallets and onto railroads and so forth if you're in this remote farming area. And so they've, they've started to build eco-villages and that's where I was invited over there to, uh, UNESCO sent me over there to train them on eco-village technology. And they're, they're building you know, eco-villages, they wanna build uh, 100 eco-villages in five years. These are villages that will be net drawdown. They'll be taking more carbon out of the atmosphere. They'll be self-sufficient in food and clean water and education and so forth within the village. For the farmers who are moving to those villages, it's a better life. It's a better system than they had before. And they provide the labor that's needed to go to work in those large biochar producing units that they're putting in. Interesting. So getting back to the U.S., I mean, we've only touched a few of the applications of how to use biochar that, are, that you list in your book. So it's definitely, uh, if, you, if you've been intrigued so far with what we're discussing, I would highly recommend the book Burn. Uh, to find out more, but what would you suggest to those entrepreneurs who are intrigued with this and want to provide uh, some revenue streams for them and help help the uh, the environment at the same time? Because uh, there's great opportunity there. Yeah, there are new opportunities now that are, I would say, on a par with the beginning of the industrial revolution. You know, you you can find opportunities now that are similar to what Commodore Vanderbilt or uh, Rockefellers or the um, the early magnets and Andrew Carnegie's and, and so forth uh, stumbled into in, in that century. Uh, that, that, that kind of scale of change is underway. 
people are starting to have the inevitability of climate change as their sole focus. They really understand that now. And they're starting to see that we're going to change from being net emitters of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere to being net sequesterers. And to do that, we're going to have to change every aspect of our lives. And as we do that, it's an enormous opportunity for microenterprise, for new businesses, for whole new industries to start. China certainly is seeing that and they're taking advantage of it, but there are many others as well. So I would say the investment opportunities here, you can find uh, offerings right now. There are companies that are looking for more capital that are trying to expand rapidly. I was just on online today with someone in Cambodia who's converting rice husks, husk, husk ventures is uh, they're now just calling themselves Husk, and they're, they're wanting to take their model from that they've developed in Cambodia and move it around and put it in different countries. Uh, there's uh, an outfit in Colorado um, that uh, is a biochar producer that's making carbon filament and um, wastewater treatment filtration systems with biochar. Uh, they've expanded that whole market. Uh, you've got others uh, who are looking into the bio oils and wood vinegars and biofuels uh, that are they're liquid fuels that can be made in the same time as you're making the biochar that come off of that same pyrolysis process. So there's these opportunities and if you it doesn't take much to go and, and find them. Uh, you can go to the International Biochar Initiative website and on any given day you're going to find new material there and webinars and opportunities to learn about some of these new industries. All right, so we'll, we'll put that link in the article because that would seem to be a valuable resource for someone who's interested in this. And any other resources you could recommend other than your book and this site you just mentioned? Well, I'm about to give a, a tour. Uh, the International Biochar Initiative is sponsoring a tour to Finland uh, in, at the beginning of September. If you want to, if anybody would like to come on that tour, we still have a few slots. We're going to be visiting some of the Finnish production of biochar and some of their, their business models. And some of the people who are signed up to go on that tour are some of the more interesting people in the biochar world from Australia, North America, and other places. And so I, I recommend to anybody who wants to learn really quickly to come on that three-day tour at, in Finland at the beginning of September. Uh, and the other, the other thing that we've got uh, going on is we're doing conferences at least once a year in North America at the U.S. Biochar Initiative. Uh, we've just recently concluded one in, in Colorado. There's an international one in Seoul, Korea later this year. There's another one in Australia later this year. So there are other biochar conferences going on, and you can learn an awful lot in a short amount of time. In fact, Dr. Marcola, I think I met you at the Amherst Biochar Conference. Yes, I was going to say, I went to one of those. That was what, four or five years ago. Learn something because those are amazing conferences yeah. that you pick up an awful lot of information in a very short amount of time. Yeah, it's like going to grad school in the topic. It's, it's really good and meeting a lot of interesting people like, like I met you. Yeah. So, uh, and that, so that conference is, goes on every year then, right? Yes, and the tours uh, occur a couple times a year. Um, this one in Finland is especially interesting because this was a, a project that actually began in Stockholm, Sweden. They, the, the forester, the city forester was noticing that the trees that they were growing in, in the city were not looking very good, that they had 30-year-old trees that looked like they were three-year-olds. They were, they were skinny and scrawny and not carrying leaves. And so they figured out, well, you know, we've got climate change. We've got this weirding where it gets really cold and it gets really hot. And it gets really cold again. Trees are having a hard time. 
And so what they decided to do was to tear up some sidewalks and put down biochar under the pavement. And sure enough, the trees just started to thrive. And now you had three-year-old trees look like they were 30 years old. Uh, and not only that, but the water got cleaned under the pavement. And so it started to come in cleaner to the, into the river, which went to the Baltic. Also, the city got cooler, not just from the trees, but from the evaporative cooling effect of water passing through the biochar. This is a refrigerant effect that we've also talked about in the book, that you can make biochar refrigerators. Well, the, the city got so enchanted with that that they started tearing up pavement and putting it under the pavement of the city's streets. And they started tearing it up all over Stockholm. Other cities started noticing the beneficial effects that, fit, that they were having there in, in uh, Stockholm and all the cities around Sweden started doing exactly the same thing. So much so that the city of Stockholm had planned to make, meet all of its biochar needs just from municipal wastes. And they soon found that they needed much more than that. So they went to Finland, and now Finland is producing the biochar to supply Sweden with this massive transformation of their city streets and sidewalks. And that's what we're going to go see when we go to Finland. That's interesting. So it would, it would seem, though, it would be better to produce it locally. And I'm wondering if when they're tearing up the sidewalks and asphalt, if they're replacing it with materials that are infused with the biochar. They are indeed. They've made a new biochar macadam. They've reinvented a 200-year-old recipe uh, with uh, gravel and, and uh, wood oil instead of tar, uh, fossil fuel-based, and, and then uh, the biochar instead of uh, sand. And they've gotten this fantastic effect of water cleansing, you know, just the fact that the water wow. itself is being cleaned from the streets. And then it goes, and it, and it goes back to the oceans and uh, it comes out clean, you know. So this is, this is very important, especially when you think about microplastics and all of the kind of contaminants mm -hmm. that we put into the environment all the time. That's being cleaned too. So none of that is reaching the ocean. Interesting. You know, so theoretically, the, the biochar could capture some of these microplastics. And since they serve as homes for the a microbial environment, uh, I would imagine even some of the mycorrhizal fungi or types of them could eventually learn to digest that microplastic. Because that's really the, I think the only organism that can do that would be a, with some type of fungus. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to talk about you on that. Uh, <laughs> In a few months, we're going to do the interview on plastic, which is not a very long book, actually. I didn't realize it was so short. Yeah, I've got a but, children's version coming out next month. <laughs> a really interesting book. Yeah. Um, but actually, I talked to someone today who's uh, working, working with um, uh, manufacturers of fabrics, uh, clothing manufacturers, and they're, they're making scraps. They're turning the scraps from the textile industry into biochar. So you can imagine blue jeans. Uh, when you're making blue jeans, you have scrap material left over, and now that's going to make biochar. Uh, eventually, you could conceive of it even being woven in to the fabric instead of some of the polymers that they're using. Yeah. yeah just a quick question on the concrete in, in Finland. What, what type of concentrations were they using in biochar in it? Yeah, uh, it's actually in Stockholm, and oh, Stockholm, sorry. Uh, I think it's about, uh, I'd say about 20%. 20%, because so you had mentioned earlier, like 5 to 8%, but they're up to 20%. You know, you know, I, can, I, I have the formula. Um, I, can, I can send it to you. It's, uh, it's you know, um, like two parts, uh, sand, uh, two parts gravel, uh, two parts bio oil, um, uh, some more other things like sand, and then, and then it's like uh, two parts, maybe one-sixth is, is the biochar. 
Yeah, and maybe you could, we're getting close to ending it now, but I think there's an, a, an important point we skipped over because once you have raw biochar, that's not really the ideal form to put into the soil. You need to activate it and ideally compost it. No, but, it's a very important point. I yeah, always, but, yeah, yeah but you, you don't need to activate it to put in the into the concrete. Right? No, I, I, there's, a, there's a thing to remember here. And, and anytime you're using biochar, all, if you're going to use it in a garden, always charge it first. So there's four M's to remember, four M's. When it comes out of the kiln, it's bone dry. You need to moisten it. That's the first M. Always moisten the biochar. It goes from hydrophobic to hydrophilic. It goes from water hating and repelling to water loving and absorbing. You need to change that with moistening it. Second M, you need to micronize it. You need to take it down to the size an earthworm can digest. When it comes out of the fire, it might look like the original plant material. It needs to get smaller. It needs to get down to the size of a BB or smaller. The next thing is to um, microbialize it. So you want to be able to add microbes, uh, fungi, bacteria, non-parasitic uh, nematodes. You want to get the right kind of aerobic bacteria into it. And you can do that with a compost tea or effective microorganism blend or put it into a compost pile. Any of those will add the microbes to it. And the last thing is to mineralize it, which is to add the minerals that your garden needs, maybe a little uh, uh, calcium or some um, a rock powder. That will give you the microbes food, and it will also add to the plant stores that are in your garden for the plant nutrition. So when the plant gets hungry, the plant might be deficient in calcium, say, or it might be deficient in magnesium, some trace mineral that it needs. So it exudates what comes out from its roots that it exchanges with the nematodes has a deficiency. And the nematodes notice and they pass the word through the fungal network that this plant needs more magnesium or this plant needs more calcium. And so now the word goes out, that material flows back to the plant root, the nematodes transfer it in, the, and suddenly the plant is getting exactly what it needs when it needs it. If you have the biochar in the soil at the root zone, there's an automatic storage. That biochar becomes cupboards. That's where the microbes store all these calcium and magnesium and things. If there's too much of something, they'll put it in that soil reef. If there's not enough of something, they'll take it from that soil reef and they'll give it to the plant on demand. So that dynamic structure makes for enormous plant growth. You see like 400% gains in plant growth in the first year from things like that, just having that availability with those four M's. If you don't do that, if you don't charge the, what you're getting is a dry, powdery charcoal put in your soil, and what happens is for that first year, that reef is being stocked. The, the microbes are drawn into it from other parts of the garden, and suddenly all your plants are starting to look kind of weak because they're stocking the reef instead of feeding the plant. So if you stock the reef before you give it to the garden, then suddenly the garden's going to do great. Yeah, so that's good words, and I'm glad we caught that because we, the last thing we want to do is inspire people to create biochar and then put it in the soil and get not get the benefits that they were expecting because you've got to do you have to use those four M's. So uh, the name of the book is Burn, and uh, it's available pretty much anywhere. It's, and it's published now, right? Yep, it's out on Amazon, and it's uh, from Chelsea Green Publishers. You can order it from their store in Vermont or from any of your local bookstore. I would urge you, go to your corner bookstore. Keep them alive. Keep them going. Order yeah. the book, and chances are the person behind the counter will order five copies because they know somebody's interested, yeah. uh, and that's what I want to see. Yeah, well, th thanks for that encouragement. And uh, to, 
support the local booksellers. So uh, it's been a great pleasure to connect with you again, and uh, I would really recommend the book if you have any interest in this topic because it's uh, really an interesting read and inspiring about all the different applications and the potential to remediate a real serious environmental challenge. So thanks for everything you're doing. Oh, it was a really pleasure to be here and talk to you and your audience. And I really hope that everyone will, will pay attention to what's going on in the world and to remember that it's not too late. People get really despairing about climate change and thinking it's the end of the world and there's nothing we can do. And oh my, look what's happening. It's just too, too late. We've blown it. It's blown. It can't be fixed. No, you can fix it. It's not too late. We can get out there and do some changes, but it's going to change everything. We're going to change the way we, we live and actually... That's a great opportunity because how many times in life do you get a do-over? And this is a whole civilizational do-over that we get to do now. Yes, with massive upside potential to improve the quality of, of pretty much every process that we're engaged in. Uh, it's a win-win-win, just like China's doing. So hopefully we can uh, join their forces and replicate what they're doing on a large scale because we desperately need it.